Our sermon series uh, that we are beginning today is titled The Aftermath of Easter. And the word aftermath might convey to you destruction, desolation, uh, something that doesn't feel like Easter. Uh, but the the word aftermath actually originated in the 1500s as a term that meant like the second harvest, that you had your harvest and then you had a second one and that you'd replant, that you would grow something new uh, afresh. And so what we're going to talk about for the next six weeks is uh, the aftermath of, of Easter in which it's not just there was like a one-time event, but what's What's the continued harvest, the continued life-giving story that follows that original Easter Sunday? And so to do that, we're going to talk from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, which is a chapter in which Paul tries to uh, convey through a letter to a church uh, what his understanding of the resurrection is and its hope for us all. Uh, And we'll get into the fun questions that he's hearing from Corinth uh, as we make it through this series. Uh, but he's trying to tell people that Easter matters, that resurrection matters. And so we're going to walk with Paul. Now, Paul is always a little bit challenging um, to read compared to gospels or narratives. And I just want to bring to mind the fact we are going to read one side of a letter, one side of a communication. We don't hear the correspondence that they've sent to him. We don't know his previous background with them that much. And so there's a little bit of when we read Paul that we're like parsing out every little detail of that text message or that email or that social media message in which you're like, wait, what's the tone here? What were they trying to say? What didn't they say? And so there's always this kind of like trying to figure out as much of the conversation as we can as we read through uh, some of Paul's letters. And so we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll read us the whole uh, section that we're going to do today, and then we'll talk about it. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, and which you also stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I hand it on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when I read Paul and he says something like this that starts this chapter, I want to remind you of the good news that I proclaim to you. Just so you know, 2,000 years of church commentators are like, thank you, Paul. You're saying, I've already talked to you about this. I want to remind you of something. What it means is you get to construct a little bit of what, what was Paul telling people when he would go to each new town and he's going and preaching. 
Because what's tricky is, since the letters are what we have of Paul's, we tend to only have his correspondence after he's already met people and after he's already talked to people. And so we have this little glimpse here of, hey, remember what we talked about? Let me remind you of what we've already talked about. And so you're like, oh, we're going to get something good here. We're going to get something that we might not otherwise get. The good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received and in which you also stand through which you are being saved. Paul has not told you the problem yet in this chapter. We're going to get mostly into the problems in the next weeks. But the problem is, is that the church in Corinth, for the most part, doesn't seem to believe in the resurrection in some capacity. Whether they believe it's just about Jesus and not about us, or, or maybe they think it's just a spiritual thing, not a bodily thing. They are wrestling with some questions about resurrection. And Paul first wants to say, do you remember the first time that we met and what we talked about? I want to remind you, do you recall that occasion? The good news that I proclaimed to you, you received it. You stood in it. You believed in it. That good news was, is saving you. There's a bunch of, to get technical, there's a bunch of um, like historical tense uh, verbs happening in this passage. I proclaimed it to you. You received it. And then it goes into the present tense in which you are being saved. So your present moment, your present healing, what God is doing in you. Do you not remember that the, the thing that's happening to you right now is because of this great news, which you, I know you heard it. I know there was a moment you believed it, but is the thing that is currently saving you and transforming you, maybe are you letting go of it? He says, if you hold firmly to that message, maybe I'm, I'm letting go a little bit. And maybe then if we let go, we might have come to believe in vain. That word in vain, you know, I always think about Ecclesiastes, about vanity of vanities, of uh, vapor of vapors. The thing that you can't hold on to, it's just not substantive. It, it doesn't come into fruition. It doesn't come into something uh, that's an outcome, an end goal. It doesn't, it just, it fades away, it disappears, all that work for nothing. Maybe we've been on this journey together. Like this is pretty like despairing sounding. Paul's like, I went and I preached to you Maybe all of that work has been for nothing. Was this in vain? Did, did nothing really matter? We, we talked about this. We believed it. We were being saved by it. But maybe that was for nothing. I sure hope not. Please don't hold, you know, don't let go. Hold on tightly to that message which I have proclaimed to you, the good news. And then Paul tells a story. And what's beautiful here is, there's a lot of analysis on the language here. Uh, it seems like this is like hymnic material that, that the early church used this kind of wording. That Paul isn't just talking from his own vantage point. He's quoting uh, this great kerygma, this great good news that has been shared. For I handed on to you of first importance what I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I want to remind you that when we hear scriptures, we think about this. They did not have a nice, neat Bible. They had some scrolls that they considered to be holy that God spoke to them through. And then there was arguments about which of those scrolls you get to consider to be that holy thing. 
But Paul is not saying, hey, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He is writing this before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. And so he talks about, hey, Jesus died and was risen according to the scriptures. What he's saying is, you know, we read some prophetic texts. We read some Psalms where it says, hey, you know, you have the like suffering servant, Isaiah text of these texts of someone who bears our sins and our transgressions. And yet God will lift them up. God will redeem them. God will renew them. will will raise them up. And so uh, it, it's interesting that we kind of rely so heavily of like this nice, neat, bound Bible. But Paul doesn't have the luxury of that. Paul's saying, hey, you know, scriptures do point in a direction of Jesus. You know, we, I, I wish he would give some citations. Which Psalm are you talking about? Which Isaiah text? Which, which text are you talking about, Paul? That would be really nice. Uh, but he doesn't give us footnotes. And practically, it really wouldn't be useful most of the time. Again, people didn't walk around with bound Bibles. And not everybody could read. And so Paul says, hey, shorthand, scriptures talk about one to come who would die and be raised. And so that's what we proclaim to you, the good news that was handed down to us, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. And while we note that, that uh, you know, if you are looking for a term, that third day is a little weird. Uh, the term for ancient counting of days is called inclusive counting, if you want. Why does it say on the third day and he was crucified Friday midday and he's already out of the tomb Sunday morning? Uh, it's a little confusing because from our counting, that doesn't look like three days at all. looks like a little bit less than 48 hours. Uh, but from the ancient standpoint, it was Friday. That counts as day one. Then it's Saturday. That counts as day two. Now that Sunday has started, that counts as day three. Um, but it's one of those things that we start to think about. I'm like, wait, what is three days going on? What's going on there? Um, but Jesus was supposed to have died, be raised on the third day. And then here's where it gets to What's the, the proof? What's the evidence of this? How do I know this is the case? We've heard this tradition, but how do I know this to be true? I don't have a biblical text that I'm just supposed to believe in fully, uh, but I've heard the news. And so P Paul says that Jesus then appeared to, set, to Cephas, and then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Paul saying, you want to know that Jesus had died and rose again? How do you know it? Go talk to his friends. Go talk to the people that saw him. His argument is not about, let's find the right, the perfect proof text. He's saying, hey, if, if this is an argument, just go talk to the people. Some of them have passed. I get it. But some are still alive. And you know, I mentioned the third day kind of being weird. You, you might not have noticed that this list of names is a little peculiar. Uh, he starts with Jesus is risen. He appears to Cephas, then to the 12. He appears to 500 people on one time. Then he appears to James, then to the apostles, and then to Paul. What's weird about this is that does not look like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the order of resurrection appearances. I loved, I was trying to look at uh, some commentaries like, I wonder what people have tried to suggest around this. And one of them was just like, there is no point trying to con connect this with those stories. It just doesn't work. Um, you might be like, well, what about the women at the tomb? 
weren't they the first people to see the risen Jesus? Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John, where she thinks Jesus is a gardener. And she hears her name and realizes, my teacher, Jesus. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it does have that the women, they are told to go tell the disciples something and on their way out, then they see Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, it's very weird. There's nobody who sees Jesus. Uh, there's The scribes did not like that. They added some extra endings. And those endings fit Matthew, Luke, and John. And they kind of throw them in at the end. They're like, we don't like the ending where nobody knows. Uh, but that also doesn't line up with Paul's version. And Luke, the first people in the story that get to see Jesus risen, is the people on the road to Emmaus. They're walking along the road. One of them is named Cleopas. I don't know why we get his name, not the other one. But they're walking along and they have this conversation. They're downtrodden. And then they realize through the breaking of bread that they were with Jesus. Then they go home and they tell the disciples and the disciples, it is literally just this. It says, oh yeah, he appeared to Peter and to us too. That is the only thing Luke says about that. You don't want to tell me more? What did Jesus do when he showed up with Peter? What did he do when he showed up with the, the 12? So like, that's the closest one. You're like, maybe you can make sense of Paul's version from that. But Luke is just like, it seems like he's just conveying, I, I know someone said Peter got this story. I don't have a story to tell you from it, but, but yeah, Peter also got Jesus showing up to him. And so you have all these stories and, and it's interesting because Paul is living in a time, none of those gospels are written. Paul doesn't have to defend himself of like, well, here's the order I've been told. Uh, here's why that looks different than the other people's orders. But what's really fascinating to me is that on the one hand, we can talk about all these people who've had these experiences of the risen Jesus, and yet none of the stories are lined up perfectly. Like nobody's been able to figure out how to make perfect sense of it all. You'd think that if I was writing a gospel, the resurrection stories would be the part I'd get perfectly. It's like, here's the, the climax, here's the amazing ending. Let's all have this perfect in agreement. And yet they're all a little bit different. And that messiness was okay with them. They didn't seem to mind that, that they didn't have all the exact same ways of talking about those stories. But Paul's point is that Jesus's resurrection was not a secret. I'm giving you a big list of people to say, it's not like I'm just the one telling you this. Peter, you want to go talk to Cephas? What about the 12, those that knew him best? It's also worth mentioning. The 12 weren't really the 12 at that time. Uh, in Acts, we get that they replace Judas, but that's after Jesus' ascension. But I kind of think of the 12 here as a little bit like the Big Ten. There are 14 teams. The big 12 is 10 teams. But there's some sort of like importance to that number. And for the, for the Jewish people, the 12 is like the 12 tribes of Israel. That number matters to them. More importantly than getting it right, perhaps, was saying the 11 at that time to be technical. But go talk to the 12. What about the 500 brothers and sisters at one time who he appeared to? We have no clue which story that is. Is that supposed to be Pentecost? Pentecost doesn't seem to like be explicit that it's Jesus showing up to them. You got the spirit rushing in, but there's the story of 500 people. What, what story is that supposed to be? But 
if you want to talk about this is not a secret story, go talk to the 500 people. And then also to James, the brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles, which he's using as broader than that original 12. So Paul says, hey, if you want to argue about resurrection, go talk to the other folks. If you think it's just me and you don't like my teaching, you don't agree with the way I do things, fine, go talk to them. But last of all, Jesus did appear to Paul. Now this verse and verse 8 is a little strange. And I, I wrestle with the right way to frame it and maybe to give you a warning that this is a, a, a difficult metaphor. The NRSV says he appeared as to one untimely born. And as it's phrased that way, it kind of feels like maybe it's saying, oh, if I had just been born a little bit earlier, maybe then I would have gotten to be around Jesus. Maybe I could have, I could have done things, but I was born a little bit too late. That's what it might feel like. But this untimely born is the, the phrasing that you would use about miscarried babies or aborted fetuses. It would be the child that wasn't born healthily and in the right time. And why he would pick such a dark metaphor, but he's talking about something about his, he doesn't see himself as fully formed and developed in his past life, that there was something about himself that was not truly alive, that was not truly born correctly, that there's, he's so negative about his former self that he says, you could consider me like a miscarried child. And despite that, that maybe I'm, am I alive or not? Was like, do I have birth defects because I wasn't born in the, in the right way? Despite what that might mean, Christ also appeared to me, not when I deserved it, but because I was unfit and I persecuted the church of God. There's a lot of self-deprecation in that. And I think Paul's trying to make a point that he's not somebody who's like, should be honored. He's not someone who should be celebrated, but there's also a danger in this. Cause I know plenty of people who they so self-deprecate themselves that they don't understand who they are in Christ well, that they, they keep talking bad about themselves. They keep thinking of themselves as the worst. And I don't know a better example of that line of thinking than the little glimpses we get here of Paul. I'm just the one untimely born, the least fit, unfit. I was a persecutor. I think it matters to talk about where Paul's going to end up that he says, I, I need you to know who I was because I wasn't fit. I wasn't the right person. I wasn't the right kind of person to be who I am today. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that phrase. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He, he doesn't just say, by the grace of God, I will someday be better. Presently, I'm not fully formed. I'm not fully transformed. I'm not fully what I can be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am today. And I think that's a beautiful step. And I wonder, like, no matter how much you would berate yourself on the bad decisions, on the things you didn't do right, the ways you've messed things up, no matter who you've hurt, that when you 
trust in the story, the good news that Christ has died and is risen, that you are a part of God's healing salvation for the world, which is not just the abstract, but is present to each of us and to our stories, that we, no matter what we have been, might be today, by the grace of God, who we are and who we can't be. And so Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. He returns that idea of what is in vain. He said, hey, you believed in Jesus. Was that belief in vain? Was my work with you in vain? And that we can be worried about, you know, is my work going to be for nothing? I've talked to um, people who have left their jobs recently, whether that's in church lives or other places, and then immediately they've seen their work kind of go in different directions. And, and you're like, well, what was I doing? Like, was all of that for nothing? Did none of that matter? Why did I put so much heart and energy and care into this thing that's just gone the next day? And Paul's thinking about that as a minister. Maybe I taught you, maybe you believed, and maybe none of that matters. Maybe you've just let it all go. But Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace has not been in vain. What God has tried to do, what God is working to do, will not come out fruitless. His ways will bear fruit that Paul might be who can, he can be through God's grace. And so Paul is aware that he has been given this gift, that he didn't deserve it, that God's work in him has not been in vain. He is now who God has made him into being. And because of that, he says, I worked harder than any of them. All that list of people, this is a little bit of that Paul, like, uh, it feels also a little bit like Peter. Like, I'm going to rush into this. I'm going to feel pretty strong about myself. You know, I might have been the least, but I sure work hard. I worked harder than any of them. And it's like he catches himself and, um, you know, scrolls are expensive. Maybe you've already written your sentence. Like, well, let's, let's smoothen that out a little bit. My, uh, yeah, I worked harder than any of them, though it, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. That little bit of like, I may have been the worst. I may have been unfit. I may have been going the wrong direction. But boy, once I got that grace, I sure worked hard. There is a danger in that. If you don't catch yourself and go, yeah, yeah, grace of God. It's not just about me. It's not just that I work hard. Because it is a beautiful thing. For those of you who feel so called to like, you are active, you are going to help people, you're going to work for people, you're going to support people. But sometimes we can just think that, that that's our identity because I work hard is all that I am. I'm going to work the hardest. I'm going to outwork you. We're going to compete upon it. And I, I'm going to show you that I work the hardest. And you can get yourself to burnout where you work so hard, so hard, so hard. And I was at a retreat this last week, and we were reading the story about Jesus trying to retreat, trying to go have some rest. And in the story, Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, is killed. And then it says Jesus wants to go rest. Maybe when you've had grief and pain, you want to go rest after that. You want to find a way to be by yourself. And then the crowds keep showing up. And then the crowds keep showing up. And, the crowd, and then the, the people keep asking him questions. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to go up on on the mountain to pray. Hey, disciples, you go cross the sea, get in the boat. I'll meet you there later. And then he has to go save them on the sea. He's like, I can't even walk on the sea unbothered. 
gets to the other side, crowds show up. There, there's a way in which we all work nonstop and the work will never end. But you don't have to like just be like a workaholic about it. Jesus still had the dinner parties. He still met with people. He still had, had time to get away, to go pray. And so I worry if you feel like you are small, like you are less than, don't feel like you have to work it out. It's okay to rest and to admit God's at work. God's at work in me. God's at work in the world around me. I don't have to do this all on my own. And it's with that that Paul then admits, whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim to you so you might believe. And there's that, the humility at the end. It's not about me preaching it to you. It's not about them preaching. We're not competing. It's always frustrating when people see like different churches as in competition with one another. It's not I, it's not they. We proclaim to you so that you might believe. And so I hope that this text, and as we go into this chapter, might at least set a foundation to be reminded that the resurrection story of Easter is one that we all should be proclaiming. It's not, it's not just me. It's not just, uh, you know, you figure out that person's articulate. Let's give them the job. We are all called to testify to God's transformation in us and in the world around us. And so you know your story. You don't have to think you were the absolute worst person in the world. We don't have to compete at best testimonies with Paul. But whatever your story is, what is it is true about your story that by the grace of God, you are the way you are right now? And how can you share that with somebody? Say, look what God has done right now. Not look what God has done 2,000 years ago, but what God is still doing right now. And so my hope for us is that we might be able to be reminded of that. And for those of us who have walked this road of faith for a long, long, long time, it can be more tricky to try to think about that question. How am I different because of my faith? And what is God doing in me? But spend time in prayer. Help God to show you those things that he's done in your life and continues to do. And let that be your story so that people can say, how do I know that Jesus was raised? Well, let me go tell you about about Bob, about Mary, about Josh, that the people that you encounter, your stories are the witness to Easter. So may we walk with Paul in telling those stories and in this life together. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that the Easter story might be visible in our lives right now. Lord, that there might be places where we feel like they are empty and void and, and lifeless. And we ask that you might bring about life and love out of those broken places. Lord, where there is loneliness, bring community. Where there is lack of energy, Lord, revitalize. Where there is guilt, bring forgiveness. 
Lord, I just ask that you might lift our spirits up, that we might be mindful that our stories matter because it's in part the stories of your work in the world and our lives, that, that everyone's story is a part of this beautiful creation and redemption story that you are weaving. Lord, I pray for anyone who is worshiping with us who can't get past the belittling themselves stage. They're too aware of their failures and flaws. Lord, we ask that you might correct their self-speech, that they might be uh, mentally renewed and saved from that track in their head. That you might speak grace into their life. That they might celebrate by grace, I am what I am. And Lord, may we not give up our hope and our urgency to want to share that good news with those around us. But there's somebody else who's been hearing so many messages about how they're unfit, they're unworthy, that they don't belong. Lord, let us rest in you and your salvation so that we can extend that welcome and love to those around us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.